I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselkumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. It's another Wednesday, which means it's another edition of PFTPM, weekly throughout the 2023 regular season and probably postseason. Offseason, we'll see. There's always something to talk about, though, during the season. And one thing I want to do is thank everyone who extended their good wishes, whether they meant it or not, given my recent kidney stone attack. I don't know what the third leg of the trifecta is from COVID to kidney stone to what but if it's anything like the escalation from COVID to kidney stone i think corpse would be the next leg of this one because the kidney stone thing for anyone who's had it you know what i'm talking about for anyone who hasn't had it thank your lucky stars that you haven't had it and be wary of the day that it happens lower stomach back that pain is indescribable there is no word that does it justice. It is debilitating. And it can only be remedied, at least in the short term, by some pretty strong drugs. And I've learned that morphine is overrated and Toradol is underrated. The morphine didn't do it, but boy, the Toradol did. And I still don't know whether or not I've passed it. I think I have. It's been three days. Every once in a while, I get kind of a stray twinge. And I don't know if it's in my head or what. Many things are in my head, so it could be. But I'm hoping we don't have round two when my next trip to Connecticut arrives for the uh, the Sunday duties, week six, NBC, Football Night in America, Sunday Night Football, et cetera. First topic today, and this is bridge day between one week and the next, and this is a day that we can get into some topics that really don't have anything to do with the games. I saw the report from the Washington Post that the Roger Goodell contract extension that I thought was already done, frankly, won't be finalized at next week's quarterly ownership meeting. They do them in October, they do them in December, they do them in March, and they do them in May. Now, there was a report from Shefty back in March that the deal was basically done, and then it wasn't, and then it hasn't been. The commissioner was asked about it at the draft in late April. And he had kind of a blunt matter of fact, hey, if it doesn't happen, it's been fun. I feel like as time goes by, it gives him more leverage in whatever the remaining sticking points are, because clearly there's something that's keeping this from being finalized. There's something he wants that they won't give him. 
or there's something they want that he won't agree to do. But he's been doing the job since 2006. I can't imagine that all of a sudden the owners are showing up with some new list of duties that the commissioner says, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to take on the extra obligation. This comes down to common sense would suggest whatever he's getting paid, some other term regarding his compensation now or in the future. And it's not done. And he's in no rush to do it. Now, from his perspective, you can look at it and say, I can dig in because what else are they going to do? Hire somebody else? They have to start at square one. Who would they get? What would they do? How would they replace me? Look at everything I've done for the league since becoming the commissioner some 17 years ago. That's one way to view it. The other way to view it would be from the league's perspective. And remember when the Ray Rice stuff happened and there was, for a little while, kind of a sense that maybe Goodell would be out? And I still think there was roughly a seven to 10 day period where every time he went to bed, he wondered whether the next morning would be the day that he had to resign or he was fired because of whatever the league failed to do properly in the Ray Rice situation. And I don't mean to downplay it. I just don't want to relitigate all of it. But there were serious concerns about whether or not the league had handled the situation properly. There was a report from the AP that they had access to the in-elevator video before TMZ leaked it to the world. And the argument was, how could you have not taken more swift and stern action against Ray Rice, given what we saw? Then the other side of it is, even if they didn't have the video, we kind of knew what happened. Did we really need to see it? And he still only got a two-game suspension. So that storm, when it raged, people were saying, do you really need to pay someone $40 million a year? to be the commissioner of the NFL. Most of the time, you are sailing through clear, open waters. That's the other side of the coin. And that's where the owners might be on this. There could be some who are thinking, hey, if this guy drives too hard of a bargain, and he's probably making north of $60 million a year now, we don't know because the league office is no longer a tax-exempt organization. When they were, we got to see what Cadell was making along with other top executives. But at some point, I think during the lockout, this really became an issue it's a disingenuous argument. The notion that because the league office is tax exempt, the league is somehow not paying taxes. Well, the teams pay the taxes. And at some point, the league decided this is a PR thing that's dragging us down. It's really not much of a difference. It's not much of a savings to pass the money through and pay taxes from the league office as a trade association to the 32 teams. So they just decided, screw it. It's not worth it. And one of the things they're able to do now is completely conceal whatever the commissioner makes. So we don't know what he's making, but whatever it is, let's say it's 60. There's probably some owners who think we could find somebody to do it for 20. 20 is pretty damn good. Or we could find somebody to do it for 10. I think the head of the NFLPA is in the range of three or four. Look at that imbalance. So that's the question from the league's perspective. If they would just stare him down and not blink and he wouldn't take their best offer, whatever it is, and he's just out as the commissioner, what do you do? Who do you hire? Who do you give the job to? Do you bump someone up internally? Do you go out and hire somebody from the outside? I have heard names rattle around like Condi Rice and Kevin Warren as potential future commissioners. People talk about Troy Vincent from time to time, Brian Rolap. And then there's the idea, once Goodell is done, if he makes it through 2027, and this is something that Jim Ursay, the Colts owner, suggested, and I have heard this. There's a chapter in Playmakers about this. 
the idea that at some point the commissioner will be a traditional CEO, somebody from the ranks of executives who run major businesses, not somebody who's spent their whole life working in the National Football League. There would be a chief football officer who would report to the chief executive officer, but the commissioner would essentially be a CEO and there would be others in the organization in charge of football. But as the job gets bigger and bigger, as the interests of the NFL become more diverse, the game is just part of it. There's so much more to the business around playing football games that the time possibly has come for someone other than a football lifer to get the job. And that's what Goodell was, a guy who showed up in the early 80s with the aspiration of eventually becoming commissioner, got to respect the hustle. Guy had a dream. He chased it. He got it. And he held it for 17 years and maybe three or four more, depending upon this contract. So if there wasn't some sort of a reason for the two sides to disagree on something, the deal would already be done. There's some sticking point or two or more. And we'll see who blinks. And we'll see what happens if nobody blinks. And either Goodell walks or the league, I mean, in theory, they could just say, we're not giving you a contract at all. They could change their mind. If he doesn't accept what's on the table, they could just yank it and you're just done. And we'll go find a different commissioner. They can do whatever they want to do. And they often do whatever they want to do. We'll find out what they do at some point in the coming months. But the contract expires, I believe, in March, three-year extension that would take him from March of 24 to March of 27. We'll see if that happens. Justin Jefferson, the Vikings receiver, did not get an extension before the season began. And those of you who follow PFT closely, first of all, thank you. Second of all, you know that my theory was if they don't do this deal, there's a chance he gets traded after the season, whether it's part of a package that would allow the Vikings to move up and draft a franchise quarterback, or they trade him to someone else and they get assets that then get packaged with other assets so they can trade up. Until he signs a long-term contract, that's on the radar screen. And now what happens with Jefferson going on injured reserve? The Vikings get a glimpse of what life would be like without him. And maybe that gets them to give him the extension. Maybe they realize we really need him. Or maybe Jordan Addison steps up. K.J. Osborne steps up. Other guys step up. And they say... 30 million a year when there's so many other receivers out there that aren't as good, but collectively can be. And if they have the real deal in Jordan Addison and he used a first round pick on him, they don't have to pay him until after the 2025 season at the absolute earliest. That's what they could do. They've had great receivers over the years. Randy Moss traded Percy Harvin traded Stefan Diggs traded. They haven't had a great quarterback, not a long-term franchise quarterback. Dante Culpepper was the closest. He had a spectacular season in 2004, October of 05. He had the torn knee ligament trifecta in Charlotte, and that was that for him. But when you look at all the different guys who have played, there have been guys who are very good, but there hasn't been that guy that has been the franchise answer like Fran Tarkenton was. And kids, for those of you who never knew this, Tarkenton was actually traded by the Vikings, and they traded to bring him back. And that sparked three Super Bowl appearances in four years, but no Super Bowl victories for the Vikings. Right now, they would just take a Super Bowl appearance if they could get one. So 
as much as I'd like Justin Jefferson to continue with the Vikings for the rest of his career, they have a bigger play here in mind. And if using Justin Jefferson as a way to gather more picks or as a way to placate whoever it is that's holding the pick the Vikings would like to get so they could get their franchise quarterback, I don't think they'll hesitate, especially if they get through the next few weeks without Jefferson in a way that the offense continues to thrive. But regardless of what happens with Jefferson, it sure feels like Kirk Cousins is going to be out once the season is over. And as I wrote yesterday, and I think Shereen Williams and I talked about this today, although maybe we didn't. At some point I said today, maybe it was on the score in Chicago, that we need to watch the next three weeks, week six, seven, and eight. If a starting quarterback on a shortlist contender suffers a season-ending injury, that potentially opens the door for a Kirk Cousins trade if the Vikings lose two of the next three games. See, the trade deadline is a little early. I think that's the subject to one of the questions, so I'll hold further comments about that. But when you've got an 18-week season, to close the window on trades on the Tuesday after week eight, it's a little too early for the teams that should be folding their tents to acknowledge that it's over because you still want to perpetuate some sort of a ruse with your fan base that there's a reason for them to show up for the games. And if the Vikings would trade away Kirk Cousins between now and October 31 and go with Nick Mullins or Jaron Hall or Carson Wentz or Matt Ryan, I don't know that that's the right way to keep the fan base engaged, even though everybody would understand that in the offseason, the goal is to go out and try to get the guy that's going to be the quarterback for many, many years to come. Speaking of the Vikings, and we don't do the after further review segment on Wednesday's PFT Live anymore. I do it here as needed. And the good news is there haven't been a lot of screwy calls lately that require close analysis. However, I want to talk about the rule that applies to players removing their helmet in the field of play. We saw it happen twice this past weekend, once in the Chiefs-Vikings game and once in the Ravens-Steelers game. I'll start with that one. T.J. Watts sacked Lamar Jackson to essentially end the game. Steelers up 17-10. After the play ended, T.J. Watt took off his helmet. And we were watching in the viewing room at that point, and multiple voices said, that should be a foul, that should be a foul. And look, I don't think a lot of people like the rule. The rule is about 30 years old. The idea is they don't want players removing their helmets as part of a celebration or a demonstration or a confrontation on the field of play. It's pretty bright line. And it usually gets applied with some degree of consistency. It did get applied to Watt. Now, the first thing you think is Dwayne Rudd, Chiefs playing the Browns, 2002, 2003 timeframe. Miles Simmons will know which specific year it was because it's one of the scars he carries around on his soul as a lifelong Browns fan. But when TJ Watt removed his helmet, the first thought is, uh-oh, the Ravens get another chance. They get 15 yards and a first down. But when the helmet removal happens after the play, it's over. That was fourth down. Possession had changed when the play ended. The Steelers lost 15 yards of field position for their first down play. What happened with Dwayne Rudd and the clips out there on YouTube? I'll probably run a link to it because I'll write about this at some point. Dwayne Rudd removed his helmet in celebration while the play was still happening. And the Chiefs player, offensive lineman who ended up with the ball, rumbled, bumbled, stumbled, where he got to a point 
that you tack on the 15 yards, makeable field goal, and that's that. So that's what happened there. Also, it wasn't a change of possession. I think that's the key, too. It extended the game. The time had run out, but the helmet came off during the play. When you have a fourth down, if the helmet comes off for a defensive player after that fourth down play ends, and if the offense hasn't gotten a first down, you don't get the ball. The other team has the ball. That's what happened in Ravens and Steelers. Now, here's what happened in Vikings hosting the Chiefs. It was a fourth and seven play. And I went back and watched this whole sequence today and listened to the commentary from Jim Nance, Tony Romo, and Gene Steratore, the rules analyst. Kirk Cousins threw a ball to the end zone, threw it to Jordan Addison, who was covered by Legereus Sneed. The official standing right there as Sneed prevented Addison from getting over the ball threw the flag. They had a conversation among the officials. Now, when that happens, we don't know who else is talking to the officials. And I'm a firm believer that if Al Riveron, the former NFL executive VP of officiating had simply used his pipeline to the referee in the Rams Saints NFC championship game in early 2019 to tell the officials drop a flag for pass interference. And they had done that and didn't bother to say to the world who told them to do it. Yes, it's a violation of the procedure, but it gets the call right. And so now when we see that, even though pass interference isn't subject to replay review because they made it subject to replay review in 2019 and it was a disaster, the standard was all over the place. It was just a mess. It's one of the reasons why the league, I think, is gun shy about making other rule changes. They screwed that up so badly, they don't want to do anything else. But when you watch it, you just wonder who's talking to the referee, who's telling the referee beyond the people on the field, because the the official assigned to that side of the field where Sneed and Addison were jostling. And if you watch it, there's contact. There's an effort. It wasn't just standing there like when a guy's taking a charge. Like if you're the defensive back, you're allowed to stand in the way of the receiver and you're allowed to face guard. You're allowed to do, but you just can't, you can't do that. Big hands. You can't, you can't do that. So uh, it looks like Sneed pushed him when you watch it. Looks like he did. They picked up the flag and they never explained why. The referee's saying something, and I thought he was explaining why, but I think he just said change of possession. It's going to be Kansas City's ball. He didn't say it had been tipped. Patrick Mahomes was doing that on the sideline. It wasn't tipped. Tony Romo pointed that out. It's just they decided it wasn't interference. And they didn't say it was uncatchable, and it didn't look uncatchable because, but for Legereus Sneed shoving Jordan Addison away from the path of the ball, he would have caught it. And they rarely call things uncatchable anymore. That is a very tough judgment to make. How do we know if it would have been catchable? We don't know because the guy didn't get a chance to go catch it. So that's part one. Part two is after the flag was thrown, Legereus Sneed removed his helmet and approached the officials. And it sure looks like they told him to put his helmet back on. One of the officials was patting the top of his head. He wasn't doing that. That's uncatchable. When you put your hand over the top of your head, he's patting the top of his head, like put your helmet back on. He puts his helmet back on. Now, it was post-possession. The Chiefs would have had the ball first and 10 from their 12 instead of first and 10 from their 24. There are people out there who are defending the Chiefs saying, 
it doesn't matter. Well, we don't know that it doesn't matter. We go back to that point and play it out with the Chiefs, first and 10 from their 12. How would they call it differently from the 12? What would they do differently? What, the, what would the Vikings have done differently? It's 12 yards of field position from the 24 back to the 12. It changes potentially everything. And the point is, they blew it. They didn't call it. Kudos to Nance and Romo and Sterator for pointing out that it should have been called. And, you know, I've gotten the pushback from the Chiefs fans that just want to defend this blindly. And I know that's how it goes. Well, it's a judgment call. Somebody says a judgment call. It's not a judgment call. Here's the rule. Unsportsmanlike conduct, the list of prohibited acts. Item H, removal of helmet by a player in the field of play or the end zone during a celebration or demonstration or during a confrontation with a game official or any other player. Sneed removed the helmet to go talk to, i.e. confront the official who had flagged him for pass interference. Now, from his perspective, who cares about the foul? It's first and goal at the one. Oh, now it's first and goal at the half yard line because he removed his helmet. They should have flagged him and it should have been half the distance from the 24 after they picked up the interference call. That just got lost in the shuffle. But here's what it does. And this is why this is so important. You got plenty of fans thinking that the NFL is in the tank now for the Chiefs because of the whole Taylor Swift thing. Even though she wasn't there on Sunday, they're Swifties now. And they love that connection. The NFL finally found something bigger than them that they could attach themselves to and ride the coattails of a phenomenon even larger than the NFL. So when something weird like that happens and it benefits the Chiefs, people are going to say, aha, they're helping the Chiefs. They want the Chiefs to win. They want the Taylor Swift thing to keep going. They'd love to have Taylor Swift in the stands at the Super Bowl, cheering on her man, Travis Kelsey. So that's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal regardless of that angle. It was an error by the officials, plain and simple. But because it helped the Chiefs, it ends up looking even worse than it otherwise would. So, look, I think it was interference. It should have been first and goal at the one. And then it should have been first and goal at the half-yard line after the luxurious Sneed removal of the helmet. Neither was flagged. One was, it was picked up. The other one was just completely ignored. Worst case scenario, it should have been first and 10 on the 12-yard line for the Kansas City Chiefs. So there's nothing we can really do about it, but they better button it up because if this perception continues that the Chiefs are getting favorable calls because the NFL is Swifties now and they want the Chiefs to go as far as they can, that's not good for anybody. Whether it's the reality, if it's the perception, that's all that matters. Because in matters like this, perception is reality. Who knows what the perception or the reality is between Travis Kelsey and Aaron Rodgers? This is a funny, spicy little subplot. Rodgers isn't playing. He's got the torn Achilles tendon. He's trying to rehab, but he still does the Pat McAfee show every Tuesday. Last week, he had the kind of snide, derisive remark about Travis Kelsey being Mr. Pfizer. And even though he said it jokingly, it was still clear there was an edge to it, that Rodgers has something that he believes strongly as it relates to vaccines, specifically the COVID vaccine. So Kelsey had some fun in responding last week. He made a comment about vax wars. He made a comment about Aaron Rodgers working for Johnson & Johnson because Woody Johnson is a Johnson & Johnson heir. He's the owner of the Jets. 
it came up again this past Tuesday. And a couple of things that stood out. Number one, Rogers wants to debate Kelsey. And who knows? Maybe he was joking. But if Kelsey says, I'll do it, Rogers is stuck. What's he going to say? I didn't mean it. Rogers wants to have RFK Jr., who is very strong in the anti-vax conspiracy theory movement. He wants to have RFK as his second. And he told McAfee that Kelsey can have Tony Fauci or some other pharmacrat. I mean, there really is a component of Rogers' comments that is strong anti-vaccine. And some would say anti-vaccine means anti-science because these things have been developed with the idea of trying to maximize the well-being of a populace while minimizing the extent to which certain diseases will wreak havoc on those people. Regardless, it's clear that Rogers has an issue with Kelsey and his shilling for Pfizer. And at one point, Rogers called Pfizer a corrupt company. He said potentially corrupt, and he laughed a little bit, and he wasn't going to do it, and then he said corrupt. I tracked down an email for the media relations department of Pfizer. I'd like a comment. Aaron Rodgers says you're a corrupt company. What do you have to say in response? Isn't that the responsible thing to do as a journalist? What do you say in response? He says you're corrupt. What do you say to him? And, you know, there's a deeper issue here, too. And I respect the fact that Pat McAfee has secured the ability to say and do whatever he wants, cover whatever he wants. That was a non-starter for me with NBC back in 2009. But when Rogers deviates into this anti-vax stuff and calls Pfizer a corrupt company, I don't know what kind of ad relationship Pfizer has with ESPN, but if there is one, there might not be. After Pfizer catches wind of a prominent guest on a prominent show calling Pfizer a corrupt company, I mean, you can, you can be somebody who doesn't believe in vaccines for yourself, but that doesn't make the companies that make the vaccines corrupt. And if it does, you're getting money from a guy whose fortune came from a pharmaceutical company. You know, he finally had that issue presented to him yesterday. And I like the way that Pat brought it up, kind of jokingly, but it was there. And he finally had to address it. And he said, well, I don't work for Johnson & Johnson. I work for Woody Johnson. I work for the Jets. Right. But the guy who owns the team got the team because he's an heir to a big pharma monolith. One of the big three. One of the big three that Rogers has said on McAfee's show, he believes, is trying to cajole sports media into vilifying him. He said that back in January of this year. Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. They want people like me to say bad things about him because he's anti-vaccine. Now, if that's the case, they aren't paying me nearly enough because they're paying me zero dollars and zero cents to state my opinions. But that's where it is. And he is getting paid by Johnson & Johnson money. And he did call Pfizer a corrupt company. So it'll be interesting to see if Pfizer has anything to say. I sent the email this morning. I have yet to get a response. We'll see if that happens. And boy, I'd love to witness a debate between Travis Kelsey, Aaron Rodgers, and whoever they bring to be their seconds, whether it's on the New Heights podcast, whether it's on McAfee's show. That would be great. And it would be awesome if Kelsey says, yeah, I accept. I accept Mr. Johnson and Johnson's challenge to have this debate. Maybe Travis Kelsey's second should be Woody Johnson or the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Maybe that's who the second should be. All right, let's answer some of your questions.
before we wrap this thing up. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselkumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Where is the tweet? Where is the tweet? Not that tweet. Where is the tweet? Come on. I was referring to a tweet that I found of Kirk Cousins being at the Twins game yesterday, somewhat incognito. Another Tuesday, another day off. It's okay. They only play the Bears this week. They'll be fine, unless they won't be. All right, here's uh, here's what we got. Dr. J144, same question I asked last week after another week of inept play by the Giants. Why did Ben McAdoo get crushed by media and fans year two after a playoff appearance year one, but everyone thinks Brian Dayball is a genius now? Did the suit get a raw deal when he was fired year two? I don't know. I don't think McAdoo was ever suited for the job. And I don't know what kind of a, of a pass Dayball is going to get. Now, the Giants need to create the impression of some stability. They've been going through coaches fairly regularly since Tom Coughlin. Dayball was over his ski, not Dayball. McAdoo was over his skis. But the thing with Dayball, who was coached the year in 2022, it's almost like 2022 didn't even happen. They got a lot of work to do to turn this thing around. So I think the fact that McAdoo got run out so quickly will give Dayball a little more time. But Giants fans aren't going to put up with a lot. They've got to fix that offensive line. This is not a Daniel Jones issue. This is the offensive line is horrible issue. No one can make it work behind that blocking or lack thereof. Tom Marshall, a Red Zona UK. Are we witnessing the end of the Patriot way? Well, I think we are. I think we are. I don't know how you come back from what we've seen the last two weeks. 38 to three, fine. The Cowboys will do that to teams from time to time. They beat the Vikings 40 to three last year and the Vikings made the playoffs. When they get up 14, 17 points, Micah Parsons pins the ears back, goes after the quarterback, clamps down on the offense and it gets worse, it gets worse, it gets worse, it gets worse. That one's understandable. The next week, losing at home to the Saints, 34 to nothing. Combine it to 72 to three. It just feels like it's done. It feels like it's over. They still have 12 games left. He's going to have to make the playoffs to change this. Now, will there be some late season 
spurt, once it kind of becomes a given that he won't be back, we're getting close to that point. Robert Kraft hasn't said anything about the situation. Jonathan Kraft hasn't said anything. Bill Belichick was asked whether he's the right person to start over. He hasn't been asked, is he concerned about being fired? You know, one of the realities of covering the Patriots is that the reporters who are in a position to ask questions, they understand if you would ask a question like that, he shuts down, he's worthless to you the rest of the segment. You may as well just end it. Plus, he can get a little pissy and he can hold some grudges potentially if somebody asks him a question he doesn't like. But we're at the point where it's fair to ask. Are you concerned you're going to be fired after the season? If they lose this week to the Raiders, it's only going to get worse. They need to win a game to stop this bleeding. But even then, do we think they're going to get to the end of the season and have even a remote chance at getting to the postseason? I mean, they've lost some games that you would have thought they would win. And the teams they've beaten, the team they've beaten, the Jets, that was one they almost lost. So we'll see what happens this weekend when they go to Las Vegas to take on the Raiders and Mac Jones and Josh McDaniels and all those interconnections between the two franchises. It's a compelling game because it's a huge one for the Patriots, who are done anyway, but the question is, when does it become obvious they're done? And if they lose this one to the Raiders, it becomes even more obvious that they are indeed done. Dr. J144, can we stop the anyone can do what Purdy is doing stuff? Not you, but others. Dan Orlovsky said Mac Jones could do this in San Francisco. I'll bet Purdy could get benched twice in New England and score three points over two games too. I don't think Mac is a great quarterback. I thought it was funny last week that Kyle Shanahan chafed at the idea that Brock Purdy is a system quarterback. That's not the same insult as game manager. Brock Purdy is a system quarterback. He runs the Kyle Shanahan system. He's not blessed with the athleticism to run away from the pass rush if the play that's called falls apart. He's a guy who, within the Kyle Shanahan system, can run any play that Shanahan needs him to run, can make any throw that Shanahan needs him to throw. He's a system quarterback who is perfect for Shanahan's system. And they haven't had that. Jimmy Garoppolo, when he could stay healthy, which wasn't nearly as often as it needed to be, and when he wasn't prone to the periodic brain fart that would cause him to do something stupid that once freaked Kyle Shanahan out so badly in the playoffs, they just reverted to a Bob Greasy approach where it was run the ball, run the ball, run the ball in the second half of the NFC divisional round game against the Vikings, and then eight passes thrown total by Garoppolo in the NFC championship. So Garoppolo was a system quarterback, but there were flaws in his ability to run the system and flaws in his ability to stay healthy. They now have a guy who can run the system in Purdy. And I think Sam Darnold, if Purdy would get injured, could probably do a good job of it too. But Purdy is exactly what Shanahan has been looking for. And if he hadn't found Purdy, I think that Shanahan would be ready to go try to sign Kirk Cousins. And if Purdy would suffer another serious injury this year, and I hate to even say that because then if he does, oh, you jinxed him. Cousins, I think, is still a possibility, but Shanahan would have to fall out of love with Purdy the same way he fell out of love with Garoppolo, and that's not likely to happen because Purdy has been great. He's an MVP candidate, and the 49ers, to me, are the best team in the NFL, and there's a gap between them and the Eagles at number two, who are also 5-0. and Sean Alvishar, how does George Payton have a job? 
He helped lead the Dolphins and Vikings decades of irrelevance. Now the Broncos, what other interest can you be so mediocre and continue to fail upward? Look, Peyton was highly coveted for many years with the Vikings, and he always backed off and wasn't ready to go. The opportunity came in Denver. He basically took over. They nudged John Elway out. And but for the Nathaniel Hackett disaster, George Payton would still have the same power and influence he had. Of course, the ownership change had something to do with it. Payton has made it clear that he's all in with George Payton. Sean Payton, all in with George Payton. But when you look at where the roster is now, and a lot of those guys were brought in by George Payton, I don't know what happens after this season. I don't know. I think there's a chance Sean Payton moves on from George Payton. There's a small chance the Broncos just hit the reset button again, although it would be a significant buyout to move on from Sean Payton with four years left. But remember, this is the richest ownership group in the NFL by far. During the time that I have explained the dynamic with Sean Payton and George Payton, they've earned enough money via interest on the cash they have in the bank to pay for the buyout. And that's kind of an exaggeration, but it's also kind of not. Manuel Villa, do you think the Texans draft pick will end up being lower than the Browns pick in light of the weird Deshaun Watson injury situation and better than expected performance by the Texans? I mean, it could happen. Although I think the Browns defense is incredible. The Texans talent around CJ Stroud is not good enough. The defense isn't good enough. We'll see. We'll see. And who knows how long Deshaun Watson's going to miss. He hasn't practiced yet this week. We'll see if he's able to play Sunday. The 49ers are coming to town, so that's a recipe for two and three. But they still have a chance, the Browns do, to emerge as the division champions. When that defense is firing on all cylinders, they are very hard to stop. David Mitchell, is there merit to the idea of Atlanta trading for Justin Fields? What would that mean for Desmond Ritter? What is Fields' trade value? I... They, they won their last game, the Bears did, and their offense looked good the game before that when their defense collapsed against the Broncos. I don't think you trade Justin Fields just yet. You can always trade him after the season. I think you see how this season goes. They beat the Vikings this weekend. They moved to two and three, right? Two and three, two and four, two and four. Sorry, haven't had their bye yet. Two and four. You get another win, you move to three and four. I don't have their schedule in front of me, but the offense is starting to click. Remember, Post-2011 CBA, reduced off-season workouts, reduced padded practices. It takes offensive line play time to develop. Maybe the Bears' offense is going to keep getting better and better. Maybe those first three weeks were the ramping up period. Week four, offense looked a lot better, even though they lost. Week five, they managed to get a win that no one expected them to get over the commanders. And if they would win this week and move to two and four, maybe it keeps working. Hunter Wallace, a.k.a. at RBR Roughnecks. If Jim Trotter sees his lawsuit through, how long until a trial would start, assuming Trotter wouldn't take a $50 million check to let this go away in the NFL's eyes? Is there legal precedent for delaying a trial as the defendant for so long that Trotter drops his suit? No, he won't just drop his suit because it's delayed. Eventually, the case will go forward. Eventually, he will get justice. Eventually, there will be a trial. Unless the NFL manages to secure a dismissal of the case. Now, what will happen is, and the deadline's coming up. It's been about a month since Trotter filed the lawsuit. The NFL will have to answer 
the complaint or more broadly respond to the complaint. The response to the complaint can be an answer to the charges, one paragraph at a time. If you've seen a civil complaint, it's numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way up to the end. And in the answer to that complaint, you'll get a response to the allegations, one paragraph at a time. The defendant either admits, denies, or says it doesn't lack the sufficient information to form a belief as to the truth or falsity of the allegation made in that paragraph. I've written hundreds of answers. I have analyzed hundreds of answers. I have written hundreds of complaints. That is one potential next move by the league. They could also try to dismiss the case. They have some ground that they could argue that Jim Trotter's lawsuit fails to state a claim on which relief can be granted. That's the old 12B6 motion. And yes, some of you lawyers out there may get an hour of CLE credit for the fact that I'm talking about this, but they could file a motion to dismiss. And one thing they could try to do, even though Trotter doesn't have an arbitration clause in his contract, they could try to make the argument that they've made in the John Gruden case. And it's a convoluted, twisted application of the NFL's bylaws. But basically, the NFL's bylaws state that if there's any question of conduct detrimental or words to that effect, it's solely within the commissioner's province to resolve any disputes along those lines. Now, I think that involves the teams, not the league's separate broadcasting arm, but it won't surprise me if the league tries something. If they can come up with some argument that they could mount with a straight face to argue that Jim Trotter is required to take the claim to arbitration, even though his contract does not contain an arbitration clause, they'll do it. Because if nothing else, it buys time. Look at Gruden's suit. It's been almost two years since he filed suit. It's still hung up in the Nevada appellate system on the question of whether or not the NFL's borderline frivolous argument, in my opinion, for forcing arbitration is going to prevail. The St. Louis case, it was stuck in the court system all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court for multiple years before the ruling came down that the NFL could not escape the court system. See, this is one of the things that I had no idea. Most people who haven't practiced law don't know. Even when you're in law school, you don't quite understand it. Who decides your case? has a major impact on whether you win or whether you lose. There are many different judges with many different political ideologies and the arbitration system, especially if you have set it up so that you are in charge of it. The commissioner is in charge of the league's secret rig kangaroo court, as I like to call it. They don't want an independent court to examine their business decisions and habits, and to force them to give up evidence they'd rather not give up. They want to control it themselves. So if they can come up with a straight-faced argument to push for arbitration, and even if it fails, oh, go to the next level, go to the next level. This one's in federal court, so there's only two levels. It would be the district court rejecting the effort to force arbitration, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, three-judge panel rejecting the NFL's appeal, Maybe they would file a petition for rehearing on Bonk, just delay the process, and then eventually what they call the petition for writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court. Time passes. And wouldn't Roger Goodell love to be gone before this case goes to trial? Wouldn't he love to be retired before this case goes to trial? 
Well, besides his extension, all they got to do is run out the clock until March of 2027, and he'll be off the job by the time the case ever goes to trial or before he ever has to sit for a deposition. But, you know, I think Trotter's got the tiger by the tail here. And I think what will happen is if they do try to get the case dismissed, try to force an arbitration, whatever, the moment that the discovery process begins to go forward, that's probably the moment they make him an offer he can't refuse financially. And look, it's easy for me to say, don't take it because we want the curtain to be pulled back and we want Trotter to have a chance to go get the evidence and to take on the NFL, take on Big Shield in open court. But boy, there's a certain number where you can't really fault the guy for saying, sorry, sorry, but my ship has come in and I'm going to go buy one of the ships that uh, an oligarch who owns an NFL team can only otherwise afford. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Paul Silva, do you see the NFL ever adopting the CFR rule that allows receivers to get a running start? Well, they do get a running start sideways, and we've seen that speed motion from the Dolphins this year, and other teams are starting to emulate it. I don't think they ever do the rule where the guy behind the line of scrimmage can start sprinting forward. I just I don't think that ever happens. But you know what? If they get to a point where they decide we need more offense, we need more offense, we need more offense, hey, how about that? How about this? Let's let the receivers have a running start so they're more likely to get open, so we're more likely to complete passes, gain yards, score points. That would be a way to do it. Amused to death, 44, on the Christian Watson horse collar. Instead of an automatic touchdown, couldn't they just give them the ball at the one-yard line like pass interference in the end zone? That seems fair to me. Well, they had the ball at the three anyway. The play ended at the six. Half the distance was the three. This one, to me, flows from the fact that the term palpably unfair act appears in the rule book 17 different times. The officials never award a touchdown or points or do anything relying upon the conclusion that someone committed a palpably unfair act. Sims and I were talking about this yesterday. Remember when Mike Tomlin tripped up Jacoby Jones on the sideline of the Thanksgiving game? And the Steelers eventually got punished like with draft picks or something like that. It should have been a touchdown for a palpably unfair act. 
Jacoby Jones was going to score. Mike Tomlin wandered into the field of play accidentally. Don't want to really, really, easy for him to say. I don't want to relitigate whether or not that was accidental. Should have been a touchdown, palpably unfair act. They never apply it. That's one of the things that drives me crazy about the NFL. And there are many examples of this that are or have been in the rule book. We got a rule that we don't apply. Why don't you apply it? And if you're not going to apply it, why don't you get rid of it? So what could have happened on Monday night, if the NFL was even remotely in the habit of thinking about palpably unfair acts, the argument would be, and this is very simple, the blatant horse collar tackle, which is prohibited for safety reasons, that amounts to a palpably unfair act. It prevented the touchdown. We're going to reward the touchdown. Now, my point is, at a minimum, there needs to be a conversation about whether in the future a horse collar tackle by the last guy with the last chance to tackle a ball carrier headed to the end zone, we're going to award the touchdown, regardless of whether you call it a palpably unfair act. Why not have that conversation? And I poked around a little bit to see what the NFL thinks of that, and I don't think they think very much of it. What I heard was, well, no one's complained about that play. Well, maybe the Packers should complain about that play. If that's the thing that starts the lawnmower, if that's the thing that gets the league to talk about it, maybe the Packers should complain about that play. And then after the game, what did Josh McDaniels do? He praised Marcus Peters for a smart play. But it is a rule that is specifically there for safety reasons. That's what bothers me. If you're serious about player safety and you have somebody deliberately breaking a rule that is there solely for the safety of the players, and he gets praised for it, and it potentially determines the outcome of the game. Is that what you want? I don't think it's what the NFL wants if it's genuine in its commitment to player safety. Maybe it is just lip service. Maybe it is just window dressing. Maybe it is just an effort to avoid getting sued. This would seem to me to be something the NFL should at least talk about if the NFL's desire to promote health and safety of players isn't fugazi. David Mitchell in an October 1 Jacksonville versus New Orleans game. Disney Plus used chips and player uniforms, so the animation was identical to real life. Why isn't this the standard? Could be used to adjudicate offsides or DJ more out of bounds. Look, this is an old argument, and it's a great example of the fact that the technology exists. Remember the old $6 million man? We have the technology. We can rebuild him. They have the technology to completely reimagine the officiating function from the ground up. No more chain the length of 10 yards with two sticks. You don't need that. You can put chips everywhere. You can track everything. Inbounds, out of bounds, first down, not. They, and, and this falls into the same bucket as uh, full-time officiating. The question isn't just, are they willing to spend the money? The question is, are they willing to take the time to do it right? That's the other side of it. You got a bunch of people on salary who would be the ones who have to take on this new project. And you know what? When your job is going very smoothly, your hours of the day go by in a pleasant way, you like what you're doing, are you really looking for more stuff to do? That's the other side of this. It's not just cheap, it's lazy. The people at the league office who would be responsible for revamping, reimagining, reconfiguring the officiating function in all respects to fully embrace 
the digital age. They don't want to do it. They don't want to be bothered with it. That's as reasonable an explanation as they're too cheap. You put them both together and we're going to stick with what we've always done. And I don't see it changing anytime soon. Dean Ficini, if, uh, let me start over again. I think the odds of Belichick leaving New England are increasing all the time, but what I don't know is who would come in and replace him as head coach. Also, if Belichick does go, do you think Tom Brady would ask be Kraft, would be asked by Kraft to join the organization in some capacity? Not if his purchase of five or 10% of the Raiders goes through. It sure isn't going to happen. Now, it might not go through. There was a report last week on that. The fact that you can't give employees equity anymore. That may have derailed whatever structure Mark Davis had in mind. One of the reports was that the 5 to 10% share was at a 70% discount. That might not fly. So if he isn't a part owner of the Raiders, I don't know, maybe he could come in and help with the Patriots. Once Belichick's gone, who knows? And there's a thought that Gerard Mayo is going to take over. I think the problem for Mayo is he's too close to the train wreck. I think when it's time to make a change, they're going to have to start from scratch. One name that was mentioned to me a while ago, Mike Vrabel. Bring Vrabel home. He's never coached with the Patriots. He just played for the Patriots. Now, would the Titans let him go? Maybe it depends upon what the Patriots are offering. But bringing Vrabel back to the Patriots is kind of a fascinating turn if it would happen. But you know what? You got to have the players at the end of the day. And they haven't had a great quarterback since Tom Brady left. And it's not a coincidence. They've struggled ever since. And right now the wheels are coming off. Another one from David Mitchell. If Jacksonville fails to get public funding for a stadium and the cons move, would St. Louis, London, or some other be the favorite to be the next home? I, I think they go to London if they would leave Jacksonville. And I think that they're going to get what they're looking for because they're able to work the political angle through the new mayor in lieu of putting the measure on a ballot. And I don't think there's any... NFL city where the populace would approve of the expenditure of taxpayer money to subsidize renovations or stadium construction for the billionaires that can afford to go out and buy five, $600 million yachts. And Khan's got one of those big boats too. He can pay for his own stadium renovations. That's the attitude most people would have. And in every NFL city, there's a lot of people who aren't football fans. And they're definitely not fans of giving away money to people that they don't think need it. Why does a billionaire need our money? So it feels like they're going to finesse it without a ballot measure. They're going to get it done and they're going to stick around Jacksonville. It feels like that's the way it's headed. All right, I should probably wrap this up. Let's see what else we have. Uh -huh. Some of the stuff we've already addressed. I'm just scrolling, scrolling. You know what? I'd like to finish on a high note. I always like to do that, but I don't... <laughs> I don't I don't think some of these are funny, but let's just call it a day. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. We do PFTPM every Wednesday afternoon. Tape it at one o'clock Eastern or thereabouts. PFT Live every weekday, 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern on Peacock, Sirius XM 85, podcast, Sky Sports, NFL, etc. And we're always open. No locks on the door. 7-Eleven, ProFootballTalk.com. Come get the latest on everything that's happening in the NFL. We appreciate you very much. We'll see you next Wednesday.
I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clearer skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.